Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you had found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please, come near, that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him, because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him, and he ate. And he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments, and blessed him, and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord had blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me, and I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O oh, my father. The word of the Lord. We are in a series on the book of Genesis. And this week, we're beginning to look at the life of Jacob. Jacob is the last of the three patriarchs, if you've ever heard the phrase Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Jacob, therefore, represents a turning point in the Bible, a turning point in the history of Egypt. Yeah, I don't know, Aaron, if, I don't know if you know which channel I'm in, but maybe we can... Uh, so Jacob is this turning point in the story of the Bible, and... Uh, therefore, his story is very important for us. 
Um, and one of the reasons is this. If you recall the basic storyline of Genesis, uh, the first 11 chapters tell the story of how God created the world to be a place of blessing. And um, what happened was that because of human rebellion, uh, because of human uh, rejection of God, uh, that world became a place, it went from being a place of blessing to becoming a place that's under a curse. And so what happened was God came in chapter 12 to one man named Abraham, and he said to Abraham, Abraham, through you, through your family, I'm going to turn this world from a place of cursing back into a place of blessing. Through your family, Abraham, I'm going to bring healing to the world. In fact, I'm going to raise up one of your offspring, one of your seed, who one day is going to come and is going to conquer all sin, all evil, all suffering, all death for all time. So the story of Genesis in many ways is the story of this messianic seed, of this promised offspring, this, this seed who one day will come and heal the world. And so as you move throughout the story of Genesis, one of the questions throughout as you see the the family line being traced out is the question is always, which generation is going to carry the seed? Which son is going to carry the seed? Which son is the promised one? Which son is the son of blessing? That's one of the big questions as we move throughout the story. And that's the big question here in this passage. But let me tell you, this story is not just about one family thousands of years ago. This story is about you and me. And not just in the sense that, you know, you realize when you look at this story, it's about two brothers who are fighting with each other. It's about family division. It's about people who should be with one another, but who are turned against one another. That's not all that this story is about. This story is about blessing. It's one of the most powerful concepts in the Bible, and it's a word that comes up over and over and over again in this passage. This story is all about how Jacob steals the blessing. Now, what does that even mean? When we think about the word blessing, especially as modern people, um, we have a tendency to think of something that's pretty weak, actually. We think of something that's pretty anemic. It's, it's like the warm fuzzies. Like, we just want to wish someone a general sense of well-being. In fact, if you're from the South, you know, blessing can be kind of a passive-aggressive move. Like, if somebody says, bless your heart, watch out. <laughs> you know, blessing, we just don't have any concept for what that word really means in the Bible. So for example, it's clear in this story, if you read it, that everybody in this story understands that this blessing is something that can be stolen. Did you notice that? So when Esau comes in at the end and he says, bless me too, Isaac says to him, can't do it. I already gave the blessing to Jacob. And that tells us right there that this blessing, whatever it is, is something very unique and phenomenally powerful, so much so that we don't really understand what it is. So if we want to understand this story, and even more importantly, if we want to understand how crucial this story is for us, we have to understand what it's talking about when it talks about the blessing of God, okay? And we're going to do that by seeing three things this morning. We're going to see our need for blessing, our quest for blessing, and lastly, the provision of blessing, all right? The need, the quest, and the provision of blessing. So first, our need for blessing. Now, the, the passage we read is just one part of a much longer story. We didn't print the whole thing because it's so long. But here's the context. Isaac, the father, is old and he's blind. And he's at the very end of his life. He doesn't know when he's going to die. And so he wants to bless his son. And so he calls in the firstborn. That's Esau. And he says, uh, Esau, go out, hunt. 
get some game, bring it in, cook up a tasty meal, you know, the kind that I love, and then bring it to me, and then I'm going to bless you. Now, while he's saying that to Esau, his wife Rebecca is standing at the door, and she overhears this. And while Esau is Isaac's favorite, Jacob is her favorite. And she's angry about this. And so she goes to Jacob, and she says, look, quickly, while your brother is out hunting, go and grab a couple of goats, and I'm going to cook them up because I know how to make this tasty meal your dad likes. And then we're going to dress you up in your brother Esau's clothing so that you smell like him. And then we're going to put goat skins on your hands to make you all hairy so that you feel like your brother Esau. And then you're going to go in and you're going to get the blessing that your father wants to give to Esau. Now, Jacob is afraid. And he's not afraid because this is morally wrong, which it is. He's afraid because he's worried that he's going to get caught. And so he says, but what if I get caught? And his mother, Rebecca, actually says to him, if you get caught, may the curse be on me, my son. Only you go now and do what I'm telling you to do so that you can get the blessing. So that's what he does. Both Esau and Jacob, they're both after this blessing. Now, what is this blessing they're going after? At one level, it was kind of like the last will and testament of Esau passing along the family property. Uh, Back then, very important concept, back then they had something called the law of primogeniture. Um, The law of primogeniture. In that culture, you got your identity, your stability, your security. Everything was tied to your family. It wasn't like today in our modern culture where you get your identity from your own individual accomplishments. Back then, everything was tied to the family. So while um, when a father died, they would leave like a little bit of something to the different children, the lion's share went to the firstborn son because the family's security had to remain intact. All of the assets, all of the wealth, all of the property, it all had to remain intact in order that the family's position in society could remain strong. So all of the the wealth and the property and all of that, most of that would go to the firstborn son. So Isaac wants to pass along the family wealth to Esau um, because Esau is the firstborn. But understand, it's not just the wealth. It's not just the land. It's the blessing. That's also what he wants to pass along. Now, what is that? What is the blessing? This is one of the main themes in the whole book of Genesis. One of the primary themes in the whole book is this concept of blessing. So, for instance, if you go back to chapter 1, when God creates the world, it says he created the animals, and it says he blessed them, and he said, be fruitful and multiply. And then later on, when he creates humanity, it says that he blessed them, and he said, be fruitful and multiply. And multiply. This concept of blessing is one of the primary ideas in the whole book of Genesis. In the Bible, blessing means a lot more than warm fuzzies. It's a way of seeing the potential in something and then calling that potential forth in a way that the words themselves actually bring about the flourishing, bring about the blossoming. To bless someone is not just to wish them well, It's to actually cause their flourishing, to actually cause blossoming and nourishing and enrichment and empowerment in their life. Now, in fact, here's how one of the commentators I read put it. Walter Brueggemann is an expert in Hebrew narrative, and then this is how he describes the blessing that this is talking about in this passage. He says, this story presumes that symbolic words shape human life that they have genuine and abiding power, and that spoken words shape human life. Words here are not a matter of indifference. They must be handled with respect, for they are means toward life or death. You know, it's easy for us to read this story, this concept of blessing, and think, well, this is just a real primitive superstition. 
you know, ancient people were so gullible, they believed in something like that. But we have to understand, in fact, I think we already do understand, that this is no mere primitive concept, that words and actions have genuine and abiding power to shape human life. So, for instance, there was a study done back in the 1940s. Um, they wanted to study the effects of racism on African-American children. So they gathered some children together. It's called the doll test. And they, they gathered them and they put a couple of dolls in front of them, a white doll and a black doll. In fact, they, you couldn't even buy a black doll in those days, so they had to take a white doll and paint it black. Anyway, they, they put the white doll and the black doll in front of the children, and then they asked them a series of questions like, which doll is the nice doll? Which doll is the bad doll? And overwhelmingly, the children preferred the white doll and said that the white doll is the nice doll, but the black doll is the bad doll. The words and actions of society had genuine and abiding power to shape their lives. And you could say, well, that was the 1940s, that was the height of Jim Crow, things are so much better now. But they did a series of these tests again very recently, and the results were remarkably very similar. In fact, you can watch videos of, of these children, African-American children, being asked the same questions, and they've got the two dolls in front of them. And so they ask one little boy, I was watching this the other day, they say, which doll is the ugly doll? And immediately, without even thinking about it, he points to the, to the black doll, and he says, that doll. And they say, why? And he says, because it's a black doll. And, and it's heartbreaking. They ask a little girl, um, which one is like you? And you can see in her face, she doesn't want to answer the question. She says, like me? And she points to the black doll and she says, um, that one, that doll. I, I can't even watch it without breaking down. It, it is too painful. But, but these tests show us that words and actions have genuine and abiding power to shape a human life. And listen, it's not even just... African-Americans, it's Asians, it's Hispanics, any person of color in our community, in our society is affected by this. You know, my wife Jenny has told me many times how when she was growing up, um, going, you know, a small girl going to a school where it was all Dutch kids, you know, they all had white skin, blonde hair, and blue eyes. And she's told me time and again, she used to pray when she was a little girl that one morning she would wake up and that instead of having her lovely brown skin and beautiful almond eyes that she would have white skin and blonde hair and blue eyes. And it's not even, listen, it's not even just general attitudes in, in society towards color. I mean, especially in light of yet again the uh, events of this past week, it's important to say this, that when court decision after court decision refuses to bring any kind of judgment whatsoever against any officers involved in the shootings of African Americans in this country, understand something. Regardless of the circumstances of each individual case, regardless of the circumstances, the compound effect, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, physically, the compound effect on people of color in our country is devastating. Words and actions have genuine and abiding power to shape a human life. And listen, here's the thing. If words and actions that devalue have that kind of power, how much more the words and actions that enrich and empower and affirm and cherish? It's the blessing. 
To bless someone is to see something beautiful and good and wonderful in someone or something and then to actually call forth that goodness in a way that the words themselves actually bring about the goodness, bring about the, good, uh, the beauty, bring about the blossoming and the flourishing of that thing or that person. That's what God was doing at creation and that's what these two sons are after here. They're after the blessing. But understand, even more than that, it's not even just a general blessing. It's, it's something even more specific than that. One of the most poignant things in this story is that this isn't just any blessing these sons are after. It's the firstborn blessing. What does that mean? What is the firstborn blessing? Remember, Isaac had two sons. Isaac, he was the firstborn, and Jacob was the secondborn. Esau was the favored one. Now, remember, we just talked about this law of primogeniture just a moment ago. That means that Esau wasn't just the firstborn, he was the favored one. He was the cherished one. He was the treasured one. So all his life, Jacob would have seen this special blessing, this favoritism going towards his brother Esau, and he would have been deprived of it. He would have experienced and suffered the lack of that blessing in his life. So when you look at our story, you can see this at work. It's very poignant. When Jacob first comes in, uh, Isaac asks him, who are you, my son? Jacob says, I'm Esau, your firstborn. And then later, after Jacob's stolen the blessing and left, Esau comes in, and when Isaac asks him who he is, he says, I'm your firstborn, I'm Esau. Okay, so Esau says, I'm your firstborn, Esau. Jacob says, I'm Esau, your firstborn. They reverse those two things. And we might look at that and say, okay, big deal. What, what's the difference between those two? Here's the difference. There are Hebrew scholars who point out that in Hebrew, the last word is always the where the emphasis is. In, in that language, the last word is always where the emphasis is. In other words, when Jacob says, I'm Esau first, what he's doing is he's getting by the lie really quickly. He wants to skip past that part, and then he gets to the part he's really after where he says, I'm the firstborn, because that's what he's really going after. To experience that blessing, to experience something he's never experienced in his life. In fact, he's been deprived of it his entire life. We need the blessing that says you're special. There's no one in the world like you. You're one of a kind. You're unique. There's no one else like you. We need that. That blessing that says you are treasured. You are loved. You are treasured. You are valued. You are cherished. We need that in our lives. And when it comes into your life, you come alive. But if you're deprived of that, the results in your life can be devastating. The lack of that will bring all kinds of distortions into your life. So look at Jacob. You see it happen in his life. Breakdown in his relationship with his father. Breakdown in his relationship with his brother. In fact, as we're going to see in the weeks to come, he spent the next 20 years of his life in exile from his own family and his own homeland as a result of this. It ruins his life. And if you don't get it, it will ruin your life too. The lack of this blessing has power to ruin your life. The presence of this blessing has power to renew and heal your life. And that actually leads us to our second point. We've seen the need for blessing. We also need to see our quest for this blessing. Because here's the really scary thing about this passage. Jacob has been deprived of blessing um, because of the law of primogeniture, because of his father's favoritism, because of this deep, unfilled need in his heart. His whole life is filled with unmet longing. So what does he do about it? He dresses up. He pretends to be something that he's not in order to get the blessing that he's looking for. 
And what we're seeing here, in fact, are the tragic and continuing results of what happened all the way back at the beginning of Genesis, because Jacob is doing the very same thing here that Adam and Eve did back in the garden. You remember the story? They tried to steal the blessing. They ate the fruit of the tree of which God said, do not eat it. And as a result, their lives were alienated from God. All of a sudden, their lives were flooded with a sense of shame and nakedness, with an experience of, of sin and futility and despair and emptiness. And what did they do in response to that? Do you remember? They sewed fig leaves. They covered themselves up. They tried to dress themselves up in order to cover their sin, in order to cover their shame and the nakedness in their lives. They dressed themselves up to try to be something that they were not. And we're all trying to do the same thing. Don't you see? We're all Jacob. We're all Adam and Eve because we all try to dress up in order to get the blessing. We all need the blessing. We're all on a quest for it. But Jacob's story here teaches us two very important things about that. And the first is this. We can't give ourselves the blessing that we need. We don't have that kind of power. So look at the story. Jacob, he can't bless himself. It has to come from outside of himself. And so he dresses up in order to get it. Now, in our culture, we're very committed to the idea. We say, um, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about you. The only thing that matters is what you think about yourself. In other words, we say, you have to bless yourself. You have to empower yourself. You have to enrich yourself. You have to affirm yourself. Now, there's a part of this, I think, that is very noble. And it comes out of this awareness that words and actions have genuine and abiding power to shape a human life. Therefore, we, we, we say to each other, don't let other people define you. Don't let other people tear you down. And that's good. That's right. But it misses the reality that the blessing we need the affirmation, the treasuring, the cherishing that we really need, that we don't have the power to give it to ourselves. So we read books, we go to seminars and conferences, we try to affirm ourselves, and none of it ever really works. It's not something that we can give to ourselves, and yet we're always trying. We dress up to try and get the blessing in our life. And understand, you know, this looks differently in our lives. Um, we try and get, the blessing is very different to different people. So for some of you, the blessing might take the form of romantic attention. You might spend a lot of time trying to look a certain way or be a certain kind of person in order to get the kind of attention that you're looking for. Or for others of us, the blessing, maybe it comes in the form of professional success or um, the approval of your parents or your grades or the success of your children or the world maybe thinking that you're a good person. We can even do this with religion. A lot of times, you know, going to church, being involved in ministry and service and things like that is a way of dressing up, trying to get the blessing that we need. All of us, regardless of how we seek it, we're all, like, deep down in our hearts, we're all like Esau. We're all crying out, bless me, even me also, because we're so desperate for it. The fact that we dress up shows that we don't have the power to give it to ourselves, but the other thing that Jacob's story shows us here is that even when he does get it, it doesn't work. He's still just as empty as he was beforehand. So you, if you go through the story as we're reading it, I mean, it's really amazing. You, you read through this performance that Jacob gives, and it's a master performance, really. At, at every turn, you, you think, oh, no, he's going to get caught. He's going to get discovered. Oh, no, he's about to get caught. And he makes it through. He passes every single test until finally, at the very end, Isaac is convinced and he blesses him. And finally, for the first time in his life, Jacob gets the thing he's been looking for his whole life. And can you imagine what it would have felt like just a few seconds after that? 
the emptiness that he would have felt? Because he knows that even though it came to him, it wasn't meant for him. The blessing came to him, but it only came to somebody that he was pretending to be, not the person that he really was. Even more than that, from that moment on, his life was in a a spiraling out of control from that moment forward. His brother wants to kill him. He's exiled from his family. I mean, everything falls apart for him as a result of this. The more we try to bless ourselves, the emptier we get. It never works. In fact, tragically, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, oftentimes it's, it's people who are most wounded, most hurt by life, maybe people who have been most deprived of a stable family or even moderately loving parents, people who have been deprived by that, oftentimes who are most desperate to try to dress up in order to get this blessing. Bless me, even me also. We are all trying to get this blessing, but the more we try to get it, the emptier we get, and that actually leads to our last point. We've seen our need for blessing. We've seen our quest for blessing. But lastly, we need to see the provision of blessing. Because here's the thing. Even the most successful of us, you know, the least wounded, the most successful, the most stable, the most secure, the most balanced, even those of us who are like that, we're all still trying to dress up and get the blessing, and none of us can give it to ourselves. We all have a deep need for something that we don't have the power to provide for ourselves. So how do we get it? Two steps, and the first is this. First, we have to admit that we need it. One of the things that we see over and over in Jacob's story as you read through it, and actually through the whole book of Genesis, is that God is constantly undermining and overturning this law of primogeniture that we were talking about earlier. Their culture would have said, the child of promise is the firstborn son. That's the chosen one. It's the firstborn. And God, in this story, and all through Genesis, is saying, no, that's not the way I work. I'm not choosing the firstborn. I'm not choosing the favorite one. I'm choosing the secondborn. All through Genesis, in fact, all the way through the Bible, you constantly see God undermining any kind of preference for the powerful or the strong or the rich or the beautiful, or the successful, or the talented. He's constantly undermining that and saying, no, I'm choosing the rejected one. I'm choosing the cast aside one. I'm choosing the forgotten one and the rejected one. That's the one to whom my blessing comes. And understand something about this. It's not even just social outsiders that we're talking about here. It's very easy for us to, especially in our culture, we attach almost like a moral virtue or a virtuous significance to the poor or the oppressed or the marginalized. We have no problem. We're not scandalized by the thought that God would give his blessing to social outsiders. We are scandalized by the thought that he would give his blessing to moral outsiders. But that's exactly who Jacob is. Jacob is a scoundrel. He's a crook. He's a liar. He's a cheat. He's a deceiver. That's who he is. And yet God says, my blessing I give to him. In fact, you see this literally at the end of the passage in verse 33, Isaac, Esau comes in, they discover what's happened, and then in verse 33, Isaac is recounting the whole thing to Esau. He's saying, yeah, he came in, he gave me the food, I ate it, and then I blessed him. He's like, he's realizing that he's been completely had, but then he turns around and he says, and indeed he will be blessed. In other words, the reality that Jacob is a moral failure has no impact on the reality that this blessing comes to Jacob. Friends, you know what that is? That's the gospel. 
That's the gospel. In fact, it is completely different from every other approach to life that our world has to offer. So on the one hand, you've got secular society. Secular society would say the blessed one is the powerful one. It's the strong one. It's the rich one, the, the, the beautiful one, the talented one, the thin one. That's the blessed one. Or on the other hand, uh, traditional religion would say the blessed one is the good one. The blessed one is the moral one the holy one, the obedient one, the committed and devoted one. In other words, both secularism and moralism or religion practice a modern form of primogeniture. That's what we do. But the gospel is the exact opposite of that because the gospel says it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what's happened to you. It doesn't matter whether you're a winner, whether you're a loser. It doesn't matter any of that. What matters is the grace of God. That's how the blessing comes into our lives. And the only way it can come into your lives is for you to admit that you need it. If you try to stand on your accomplishments, try to stand on your moral righteousness, try to stand on the fact that the world sees you as being a really good person, you're still trying to dress up in order to get the blessing, and it will never work. You can never do it. You can never get it. You have to admit that you can't give this blessing to yourself. But secondly, you have to receive the blessing, the firstborn blessing that Jesus gives to you. You have to let Jesus give you his firstborn blessing. Because all through Genesis, like I said at the beginning, we keep tracing this family line, right? Keeps tracing the messianic seed from one generation to another. Who's going to be the chosen son? Who's going to be the promised one? Who's going to be the one to receive the firstborn blessing? And over and over and over again, it's never the firstborn. It's always the secondborn or the thirdborn or the fourthborn. It keeps skipping over the firstborn son until finally, thousands of years later, we finally get to Jesus because Jesus is the ultimate firstborn. Jesus is the true firstborn. In fact, Colossians 1.16 tells us that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. That means that it means that Jesus doesn't have to dress up in order to get the blessing. That's exactly what that means. Jesus doesn't have to dress up because he is unique. The blessing belongs to him by right. He's one of a kind. He's special. There's no one else in the universe like him. He's the creator of the universe, and he's also the one who's received all of the blessing from the Father from all eternity. And when Jesus came to earth and took the form of a man... At the very beginning of his public ministry, he was baptized. And it says that when he came up out of the water, the heavens were opened. And the voice of God the Father came down out of heaven and said, You are my precious son. You are my beloved. In you, I am well pleased. Do you know what that is? That's the blessing. Talk about words and actions that have power to shape a life. Jesus had the ultimate blessing because Jesus was the ultimate firstborn. But on the cross, this firstborn was forsaken. This firstborn was rejected. He was cast aside. He was stripped naked and then clothed with something else. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you know what that means? It means that on the cross, Jesus was dressed in our sin so that we could be dressed in his righteousness. This story we read actually gives us a perfect picture of that because when Jacob goes to his mother, Rebecca, and she says, go dress up like Esau, and he says, what if I get caught? 
Instead of the blessing, what I'm going to get really is the curse. And Rebecca says, it's actually kind of terrifying. She says, may the curse be on me, my son, so that the blessing can be on you. Friends, on the cross, that is exactly what Jesus did for us. He was dressed in the curse that our sin deserves so that we could be clothed in, the, in his righteousness, so that we could receive all of the blessing that he deserves because he's the true firstborn. He's the ultimate firstborn. You know, there's a story in the Chronicles of Narnia about a little boy named Eustace. Chronicles of Narnia, the famous children's books by C.S. Lewis. A little boy named Eustace. Eustace was not a nice person. Uh, in fact, he was kind of a scoundrel like Jacob. And because of his pride and his selfishness and his greed and his general overall nastiness, uh, it turns out that Eustace gets turned into a dragon by magic. And he's miserable in his new dragon state. But one night, Aslan the lion, who represents Christ, comes to Eustace. And he leads him to a clear well of water in the middle of a garden high upon a mountain. And as soon as Eustace sees this pool of water, he can't wait to jump in the water and ease all the aches and pains of his dragonish body. But Aslan the lion says to him, before you get in the water, you'll have to undress yourself. So Eustace looks at his body, he sees he's in the dragon skin, and he starts peeling off that dragon skin, and he finally gets it off his body, and he's about to jump in the water when he looks down and sees that there's another deeper layer of dragon skin still on him. And so he peels that dragon skin off, only to find another layer of dragon skin underneath. And he goes through this several times and eventually gets to the point where he realizes that he's not going to be able to get this dragon skin off of his own body. In fact, he's about to give up hope of ever getting in that cool, clear water when Aslan says to him, you'll have to let me undress you. And here's how Eustace describes what happened at that point. He says this, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Aslan, with one claw, was able to get that dragon skin off. And when he does get that dragon skin off, he puts Eustace inside of the pool and he bathes him and he washes him and he heals him. And then he takes him out and there's Eustace all naked and, naked and fresh and new. And instead of Eustace getting into his old clothes, he says, Aslan dressed me. Aslan dressed me in a set of new clothes. Friends, don't you know, you need to let Jesus go deep with you. That's heart surgery. It hurts. But you don't have the power. None of us have the power to go deep, to really go as deep as we need to go. We don't have the power to go deep enough ourselves. We need Jesus to go deep. We need Jesus to get in there, to go deep into the pain and the hurt, deep into the shame and the ugliness and the sin of our lives, deep into the dragon skins of our lives, all the ways we try and cover ourselves up in order to get the blessing that we need, trying to be something that we're not in order to get the blessing. We don't have the power to give it to ourselves. We need Jesus to come and peel away all the false layers, but even more, we need Jesus to let you dress us in his righteousness. Because that's what he does. Dress us in his glory, his beauty, his power. So that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your shame. He doesn't see your nakedness. He doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your ugliness. He sees Jesus. And he says to you, you're a beauty. You're one of a kind. 
You're unique. There's no one in the world like you. That's the blessing that you need, that I need. If we don't steal that, we can only receive it as a gift. And let me just mention one more thing as we close. What do you do with a blessing like that? It's very simple. <laughs> you spread it around. You give it away to others. And I, I can't think, in fact, of many things our world, our country, our divided world needs much more than that at this time. Jesus said, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. I can't think of many things our world needs much more than that. And I also can't think of anything more difficult than that. The only way you'll ever be able to do something like that is if you already have a blessing in your life that you didn't create and therefore that can't be taken away from you because it has nothing to do with you in the first place. It's a blessing you receive by grace. And if you have that blessing in your life, just as Jesus opened his arms wide for you on the cross, so now you will be able to open your arms wide to others, wide enough to open yourselves up to their pain, open yourselves up to their hurt, even to open yourselves up to their hatred or their hostility or their toxicity and not say, I can't be around that. No, you open yourselves up to it. Instead of being attacking and condemning others, you're, you're welcoming, you're embracing to others. And the only way you can do it is because you see that God's already done it for you. That when God looked at you, he sees somebody created in his image and yet somebody else who's also dressed in rags, trying to bless themselves and desperately crying out, bless me, even me also. And he did for you so that you now also can turn around and do the same for others to help them see and receive the blessing that can only be theirs in Jesus, the true and ultimate firstborn who was cursed on a cross so that his blessing could come to you. Let's pray.